Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ahead this hour, from Conway to RuPaul's Drag Race, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth caught up with Arkansas native Simone to talk about life since her 2021 TV show win, her art, and what she thinks about a piece of Arkansas legislation that, when introduced, singled out drag performances. First this Monday, the University of Arkansas Fort Smith is preparing for a visit tomorrow by two-time Pulitzer Prize winner Colson Whitehead. The campus and community have been participating in a communal read of one of Whitehead's novels, The Nickel Boys, the 2020 Pulitzer winner for fiction. This is Cami Sublet, an English professor at UAFS, describing the book. Loosely based on the tragic story of the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, which was later renamed the Florida School for Boys. Um, It was in Mariana, Florida, and it operated for 111 years. And across those 111 years, um, there were lots of reports of abuse and even some reports that some of the boys had gone missing. But apparently that wasn't enough to get it closed. Um, So it wasn't until the late 1990s a group of men who had been boys at Dozier got together online and started telling their stories. And then some journalists picked up those stories. Um, And so there was a series of investigations um, inspired in part by the articles written by the journalists at the St. Petersburg Times. And that is when Colson Whitehead found out about the story and was really compelled to write a novel based on it. Cammie Sublett is also the UAFS lead representative to the state Winthrop Rockefeller Distinguished Lecturer Committee. Colson Whitehead's talk Tuesday night in Stubblefield Center on campus will be the first event in the UAFS Winthrop Rockefeller Distinguished Lecture Series. And the event is being conducted in collaboration with the UAFS Read This Public Literacy Program. Late Friday afternoon, I talked with Cammie Sublett and Angie Lee, a professor of English and the UAFS chair of the Read This Committee. Our conversation took place by Zoom. Cammie Sublett says, first and foremost, a lot of people reading the same book at the same time can reap big benefits. It does develop the sense of community and connection, shared intellectual stimulation, shared understanding, shared investigation of deep topics. And that really aligns with the mission of the Winthrop Rockefeller Distinguished Lecture Series, which is to obtain outstanding visiting lectures, to communicate ideas and stimulate public discussion, intellectual debate and cultural advancement. So I feel like this is the perfect sort of program for that. Angie, and both of you actually, you have um, mm-hmm. you have students and, and I'm sure there are communal mm-hmm. reads that are within the classroom setting. Mm-hmm. What sort of discussion can a communal read do? Let's not talk about a city or a campus, but but in a classroom. What what can you see happen? Well, every classroom is like its own culture. And by having these shared experiences, um, they build their own sense of um, social issues. They learn about different social issues. Um, we just talked about how difficult, I would say, it has been to re-nickel boys for them and why it's important to talk about these heavy topics. And they were, well, they kind of just said that history shouldn't repeat itself. That's why they need to know about these. And I also asked them, like, are these appropriate for high school students to learn about? And they also agreed that they were. So um, learning together, um, 
learning about different perspectives than they're used to because some of them probably do not really relate to these characters but we find like there's a there are a lot of skills they can gain from reading literature like problem solving um, decision making and skills they can actually use in real life besides critical thinking skills and so on now let's talk about this inaugural mm -hmm. uh, Winthrop Rockler Winthrop Rockefeller distinguished lecture series speaker at UAFS mm -hmm. it feels like you went up to the plate and you swung for the fences and you got it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Colson Whitehead, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, a uh, masterful writer. What does it take to get Colson Whitehead to UAFS? I'm going to say <laughs> it takes a lot of tenacity. And fortunately, Dr. Angie Lee is very tenacious and was <laughs> determined. Um, and so she eventually uh, secured with his agent, um, the, the winning commitment. Yes. It was all about finding the right person at Penguin to talk to. <laughs> They're, uh, they have so many speakers and they all have their own teams working with them. So it was all about finding the right team, um, the right people to talk to. And if you've got the money, they're happy to talk <laughs> to you, right? Um, and it's, there will be the, the public uh, appearance, but I think there's also some events where he'll be working with students and talking to students in a much more intimate setting. So he doesn't usually do craft talk. We said they were asking, like, what kind of things do you want him to do? And we said, we always have a craft talk with the author. He's I don't think he's used to doing those. So this will be really interesting. A um, an informal Q&A um, with students. We will probably have some questions um, prepared beforehand just in case, but also allow students to ask questions. We also have two high school students, uh, two high school classes that will be Zooming in to listen as well. Do you think an event like this can spur more communal reading or more reading among mm -hmm. students or just people at large? Mm -hmm. We do, and we've already seen some of that. Um, the Fort Smith Independent Bookstore, Bookish, hosted mm -hmm. a series of conversations about the Nickel Boys, yeah. and um, they had to postpone both of the most recent ones for weather, but they then were able to offer a Zoom discussion. And I felt like it really got the community involved and, and sort of energized and also asking deep questions collectively about the book and about sort of what we learned from it and how we can um, grow and be better people because of it. Yes, and um, a really fascinating discussion at the first uh, part one discussion was um, we have Mr. Bill Word, who's a community member. He was talking about how he was, he worked in the office building behind the Lorraine Hotel um, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and he was being his, um, building, people in this building were being questioned about that. So he was like directly involved with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he's in that time period. So people who are um, older can relate to some of the things happening in the book. Angie Lee is a professor of English and chair of the UAFS Read This Committee. And Cami Sublett is a professor of English and the UAFS lead representative to the state Winthrop Rockefeller Distinguished Lecturer Committee. An evening with Colson Whitehead is tomorrow night from 6 until 7 
at UAFS's Stubblefield Center with a book signing to follow. The event is free. It's open to public. It will also be viewable by Zoom. To find the link to register to watch by Zoom, go to the calendar link at uafs.edu and search for An Evening with Colson Whitehead. You can also look for the link at today's Ozarks at Large at ozarksatlarge.com. This is Ozarks at Large. In celebration of Black History Month, Undisciplined will be hosting a live podcast recording. Undisciplined Black Erasure in Northwest Arkansas will be hosted at St. James United Methodist Church on Thursday, February 9th at 6 p.m. The panel will include Sharon Killian, President of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association, Professor Ngozi Brown, an expert in historic preservation, and Tommy Davis, a descendant of the Northwest Arkansas Historic Black Community. For more information about this event, head over to KUAF.com slash live podcast. Arkansas's Attorney General says he's trying to get to the bottom of unusual price increases for some natural gas customers in the state. Attorney General Tim Griffin says he's received hundreds of complaints from customers who saw their gas bill spike mysteriously in January. Summit Utilities told the Attorney General that the price increases were caused by clerical errors. On Arkansas Week, on Arkansas PBS, he said the numbers still don't make sense and that there are huge discrepancies between bills. I can explain a lot of the bump, but I'm not, I can't say for certain that the different factors, the number of days the bills cover, the price increase, the usage increase, I cannot say that in every case, that explains the difference. Griffin says he will continue to monitor the situation and that customers will not pay for the gas they didn't use. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Cross That River at the Skokus Performing Arts Center February 25th at 7.30 p.m. Cross That River is based on real history in which black cowboys lived and helped settle the West and takes audiences on a musical journey into why black lives matter. Tickets at 479-632-2129 or skokuspac.org. Just ahead on Ozarks, we go back to August for this week's Prior Center Profile with Randy Dixon to follow the history of the Razorback Marching Band. We have an archive of our weekly trip through archives. And later, the rich musical history of Memphis is well documented. Not as well known, the musical history of the Arkansas City just on the other side of the Mississippi, West Memphis. For this week's Arkansas, Stephen Cook examines the deep tradition of music in West Memphis. That's ahead on today's show. Happy Monday to you. Thanks for being with us on Ozarks at Large. And Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, Kyle. Happy Monday to everyone. And school is back in session on the U of A campus. And it's football time. So you got us in the spirit with that fight well, song. Well, I... I I didn't pick football. You know, we've done a lot of yeah. football segments. Uh, I wanted to do something about, well, it's a staple of, of every, especially home football game, but it's the Razorback Marching Band. I mean, what is a hog game without the hog band? There are more than 350 members. Wow. So it's the largest uh, student organization on campus. Makes sense. Yeah, Makes because sense. there's not just the marching band, and we'll hear about uh, more of that 
uh, in a few minutes. There are other bands, and uh, it's it's just it's a huge department and a huge asset yes. to the university. So I want to talk about the band and the history, and I even uh, hung out for a few of their practices. Oof. It was hot. Yeah. 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 It's on a parking lot, yeah. asphalt. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like, let's go jam. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And so I want to talk about the history of the band uh, and then their performance, how they prepare for it. And then also how the Prior Center is involved uh, with the band and a project that, that we're really excited about. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. First, uh, I talked to the director of bands and music professor, Chris Knighton, about the history of uh, Razorback bands. It's an exciting tradition. Obviously, we've had the Razorback band uh through since 1874, but we, we've also been able to trace it through both world wars and through um, cultural changes with things like different trends in music. And then with all the video we have, we we're able to trace it through other political events and, and just also how uh, styles of marching bands have changed through the years. So it's developed into now more than 350 people in the Razorback Band more than 120 people in the Hogwild Pet Band, and we have five concert bands that meet through the year. So we have um, almost 400 people in the program, and probably 75% of those students are not music majors. We have students representing every college within the university. Uh, and it's just a great outreach for so many different types of students and hopefully a place where they're all welcome and able to participate in what we're doing. Remember, the beginning of Arkansas is that 16 counts of drumline, and that starts with a move. Almost uh, almost always we start with tune with a mark time, but Arkansas starts with a move. So we're going to be marking 6 to 7. 6 to 7 is a 16 count move. Metron will be giving you the quarter note. You are marching the half notes. There you go, 6 to 7 marching. All right, first we heard Chris Knighton talk about the history of bands, and then we heard... Yeah, what you heard there was I was in the field... Uh, with Jeffrey Summers, uh, who's the marching band director, and I went to a couple of their practices, and it takes place in the parking lot across from uh, Bomb Stadium, the baseball okay. stadium. Uh, and, and it's not an easy workout, like I said. There's a lot of planning, and like anything else that you have to train for, it's a lot of repetition, a lot of work, and it's hot. But, um, you know... Along with all the planning, it's really tough for this first game because you've got everybody just coming to school and you've got a lot of freshmen, people who have never done this before. Right. Now, fortunately, they probably had marching band experience in high school, but never anything on this scale with that many people. So um, I asked Summers about the process as far as like what we actually do you can kind of break things up into two different groups so like it's either like learning the music or it's learning the the drill or the marching design on the field um and we've gotten to we, we love it we've gotten to a tradition here where pretty much every home game we learn a new show and so while right now we're thinking about cincinnati here in just over a week um, but we're also thinking ahead. We're starting to learn music for the South Carolina show and the, and the Missouri State show, and then again in Dallas and for Bama. So, you know, five, five games in five weeks, um, 
you have to be thinking ahead, otherwise you get caught with like, you know, it's three days before a game and you haven't started learning the stuff yet. Like he was saying, they have to stay ahead, way ahead, because like in this case, there are five home games in a row and they have a different show every halftime. So you can't just pull one out right. in a week. Right. right. So, so, you know, they, they have to do that. And so I wanted to just listen in on a little bit of the practice and how that goes. This will get us musically all the way up to letter C. We're going to go from the beginning all the way up to letter C, which is set 11, which is where you are now. Standing in place, marking in play. Or not marching in play, just, just music. This is practice, Arkansas marching band. This is our uh, subject this week on the Prior Center Profiles. I think of marching rehearsal, right? You got maybe a megaphone or a bullphone. You got a, maybe a metronome. What else do they Well, have? you know, I always had, I was a bandy. I was a trumpet player. And you had a clip that you would have the music that you would flip over right in front of you. Well, you know, new technology as it is, they're using their phones not only with the music, but there's a marching app that you can keep up with the steps and where you need to go. Well, I mean, of course there is. Well, yeah, and um, this is the first time I'd heard of you know having a phone either in class or at some university activity. They encourage you to have. There, a phone. you have to. We use a we use an app on the phone um, that that shows them where to go, and a lot of it is like they're on the app. I know. And, they're they're reading like okay I got to march ten feet this way and then twelve yards that way and and we we're doing it all together but there's a lot of time where the students are just like they're basically just teaching themselves uh, on the fly and then what you see is like it's all together uh, and like that's what the crowd sees also it's like you know, oh we're all moving we're make we're spelling out Arkansas or outline of the state or whatever it may be but it's a lot of like individual individual learning individual um, uh, like requirements to make to make the big picture work. So, what's more important, the music or the marching? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, we, we we try to make sure the focus is on both. Um, but if if I have to choose between one or the other, I choose the music. Um, I mean, that's people recognize the tune, right? Like we we, we try to play music that you know. Either our alumni recognize or the student body recognize, um, and so if if it doesn't sound like the song is supposed to sound like, I think that's the bigger problem than if uh, you know this line or this you know shape is a little a little off. You mentioned that they're going to have five home games in a row starting this Saturday with Cincinnati, um, so they've got to stay ahead. I can't imagine the techniques that they use to make sure they've got it right. Well, one thing that they do is like the football team, they review. Films, oh, like a sure. game film, they they watch video of you know their halftime performance to make sure the lines are straight and they're marching properly and you know pretty much keep up with they're supposed to and um you know the games are shot but not always the band is shot and that's where the Woolly Brothers come in. That's two words, right? 
Woolley brothers. Yes, it's two guys. Okay. okay. It's uh, David and Bill, and they were both grads from the university. They were both in the band, but they have been shooting and saving these pregame and halftime performances since the 60s, mainly started in 1970, but they started, they were in school in the 60s, and they started doing it then because there was not really anything set up to shoot these bands. So they spent their own money, spent their own time. And and they're preserving them? Yes. They they had saved that all over the years. The problem they had with, you know, they started with film and... Then with videotape and, you know, how do you let people see these other than current band members that are that are sitting there reviewing them in a, in a class or a practice? So I talked to David Woolley. Um, he is the a retired superintendent of Alma Schools. He was a band director for a long time. But I wanted to know how all this happened. So this is what he had to say. The arrangement that the band had for filming their halftime performances, uh, ceased to work out. So Bill, my brother, took it upon himself to figure out a way to fill that void. Uh, Didn't, on a totally volunteer basis, didn't have any money, didn't have any equipment, but started trying to figure out how to make it work. Of course, back in those days, it was 16-millimeter film. This was was in uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Videotape hadn't come along yet at all in any form. Um, mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, not only was it 16 millimeter, it was black and white 16 millimeter because color was so horribly expensive in those days, mm-hmm. especially processing. Um, so that's the way it began. Uh, and I was still an undergraduate, and he was actually teaching school in Newport. Uh, and we did this kind of as we could on on the Saturdays uh, and provided that uh, to the band, it's two things. It just it's not any different than it is for football or basketball or anything else. It is uh, useful for public relations in all kinds of ways. But more importantly, it's a teaching tool. It's to help the, the in reviewing the performance to help the members of the band get better and do a better job the next week. Um, that was its real primary purpose, and still that that's still true today. And that's David Woolley, one of the two brothers. Right. Bill, his brother, was a drummer, and David was a music major, so he played a bunch of instruments. Uh, his main instrument, I think, was oboe and uh, bassoon for his major, but you don't have that in a marching band. So he switched off and played the baritone. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he went from a wind instrument to a brass instrument, which, from experience, that's very, very hard to do. So they've been doing this for years, 50 years, more than 50 maybe. Uh, are they still recording this? Yeah, they're still doing it, and huh. they'll be at the game this weekend. Wow. So um, I wanted to talk to him some more about why they do it. Yeah, It's always been a labor of love for us. As I said at the very beginning, it's, it's a way for us to give back to an organization that meant so much to us at the time and has meant so much to us as adults and in our lives and career. Plus, it uh, it lets us stay around college kids, uh, which is always invigorating for any of us. Uh, you know, we're, we're not around the band all that much, uh, uh, basically a little bit. You know, we're in the press box, obviously, at, at a game, and we're not 
in the stands with the band very much. But we are a little bit, and just being able to rub shoulders with them and know know that we're we're doing something that's very important for the uh, advancement and improvement and welfare of the band is is a tremendous thing to us and something that. Well, as we joke about it, some, one of these days we're going to be, get too old to get up the steps. But until that time <laughs> comes, we're going to keep doing it. You, at the beginning of our visit this Monday, Randy, you kind of gave us uh, some forward, some foreshadowing because you said there was something that's going on with the Pryor Center, with right. the Razorback Band, a project. You've told us about the Woolley Brothers. I'm guessing that this is a combination that somehow – Prior Center is going to let us watch these performances they've recorded? That's right. Ah, that's yes. Awesome. They got together uh, with the university and um, raised the funds to have all of it digitized, the film, the videotape, and now their digital material, and donated it or made it available to the Prior Center. And we now have it on our website. It's featured on our website. So if I say, oh, I would like to see the halftime performance from the Arkansas SMU game that was in Little Rock in 1972. They've got it. Wow. We've got it. Wow. They've got it and let us have it. If you Hey, say, I, hey I, this was what okay. was amazing. I was sitting around with my brother Phil the other night, and he started looking at it. They have it silent, but they have the halftime show from the – Arkansas-Nebraska game from 1964 at the Cotton Bowl when we won the national championship. Wow. So it goes all the way back to there. So um, I talked to Chris Knighton about all of this, how all this happened, and he said it started with a, with a phone call from David Woolley. He mentioned to me that first year I was here that wouldn't it be great to somehow compile all of this and then shared a lot of boxes of video with us. We also did a complete purge of our band building and found a lot of additional video, either on film or videotape, and, and now digital format. So about seven years ago, we contacted our friends in Fulbright College, Office of Development, did a small campaign to raise some funds and have all of this digitized, and that took several years to do that. Amy Allen and Special Collections and the University of the library was extremely helpful in helping us make contact with them and how to do this in digitization in such a way that it was um, not only a good archive that could be available for the public, but also a true research um, storehouse of information. So we have information not only on the date and the game uh, or the opponent who are playing at every game, but also what music was being played, who the directors were, who the drum majors were, the type of format of film and audio equipment that was used to record the band. And it has become a great resource for us, not only to see the history of our band, but also for so many of our alumni. We can send out links on certain days. You know, For example, last year when we played the University of Texas, we were able to send out links of the band performing at an Arkansas-Texas game from the past. And it's been a good way for us to, to make some connections with family and friends and alumni of the band program. But it's also become a great resource for other university band directors around the country who are teaching courses in marching band techniques. Well, and as, you met, as we talked about at the beginning, you can't imagine 
a Razorback football game without the Razorback band. Oh, no way. I mean, whether it's pregame, halftime, or even during the game. I mean, even at a bad game, uh, score-wise, you still have a great experience with the band. Yeah, I mean, we may lose to the Citadel, but... Hey, the band was there and they were great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, you know, they they come through mm-hmm. every time. So, um, here's what marching band director Jeffrey Summers had to say about their contribution to the big game. The band is part of what makes college football special. Um, just adding to the atmosphere and the ambiance and the the excitement of pregame and the the anticipation of leading up into the first, you know, the, the kickoff and things like that. So. I, th- I think that's part of it, um, and we're we're literally in the student section, um, and so, in, in in a lot of ways, I feel like we we kind of act like the catalyst for the student section, uh, especially when you know things may not be going quite as well as you <laughs> would hope as far as like you know the, the score and the game, you know we're we're always you know we're never going to be leaving early, we're never going to not be bringing a lot of energy, which I, don't know, I, I just think it's I think it's special. All right, and again, to see any of these donated digital archives of performances, just go to the Pryor Center. Pryor, Google Pryor Center and go there. We'll have it featured this week, so it'll be on our front page. Nice. It has every game, and as Chris said, it, it lists all the information wow. behind that. So it's, it's a nice historical uh, collection to have. Awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, before I let you go, your prediction for the Cincinnati game? It's going to be close, but we're going to win. I'm like not it. going to give a point spread sure. or no, anything I like, like that. Close, but we win. I'll, yeah. I'll take that. Entertaining yeah. that ends with a victory. Yes. Very good. And the band will be playing, and this may be a little sneak preview of what you'll hear and see, but uh, I, I caught caught up with them, and this week they were – or last week they were – practicing and uh, a performance of Life is a Highway. We'll go out with that. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. As always, Randy, thank you. Thank you. See you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, a bill in the Arkansas legislature that would classify drag shows as adults entertainment was amended by the House Committee on City, County, and Local Affairs to reclassify performances as those that are nude or semi-nude, no longer specifically addressing drag performances. Before the bill was amended, Ozarks at Large's Deanna Carruth spoke with one of the state's most famous drag performers to get her take on the issue. Winner of RuPaul's Drag Race. Simone! <laughs> now, my queen, is there anything you'd like to say? Well, I told y'all not to let the food say food, you. That was Reggie Gavin, better known as Simone, winning the drag competition program RuPaul's Drag Race back in 2021. But before her rise to fame, Simone got her start doing drag in Arkansas as early as 2013. Last week, just as Senate Bill 43, a bill restricting drag performances in Arkansas, was making its way through the legislature, we called Simone up at home in L.A. to get her take on the issue. Hello there, my name is Simone and I am a drag entertainer. Drag queen. (laughs) Important distinction. Yes, very important. The queen. 
<laughs> so Simone, can you kind of just, you know, walk me through where you were when you heard kind of about this bill, the SB 43, where you were when you heard about it and kind of what your reaction was? Well, I was here at home and I was uh, first on Twitter and I saw something about Arkansas and I was like, oh God, here we go. And so then I get on Instagram and I saw what was being proposed. Um, and I was just, I've seen so many things coming out of so many different states and even out of Arkansas. And I just saw that and I, and I was just like devastated because I, I, I think about like all of my friends and all the people back home that do the art form of drag. And it's just, it's devastating, you know? Yeah. And can you just kind of describe, you know, the, the drag scene that exists here in Arkansas, um, you know, what it's like now and maybe how it's changed from when you started out there? Yeah. Um, when I first started, there was really only one kind of drag, one type of drag, so to speak. But now going, I've been back within the last year and it just now is just so much diversity and creativity there and um, so many different kinds of people have gravitated toward drag since it's become such a, you know, wide known art form. And um, it's a place where people feel safe to express themselves, you know, and I feel like people are coming to it and with an open heart and open mind and wanting to express themselves. And it just seems like such a freeing and expressive art form now. And um, it, it was great to see so many different kinds of drag going back home and of the joy it brings, you know? And so it was very much different from when I started. I'll say that. <laughs> and because have you been back, you've been back since uh, leaving and going, to, right. are you in LA? That's home right now? I, I live in LA, yes. Um, I guess after all of this has happened, after this bill has happened, does it give you pause thinking about coming back and, and trying to perform or to do work here? Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that, you know, it, it mm -hmm. kind of, it's like a slap in the face especially when it's our form that is all about love and creativity and light and bringing joy to people. And there's no, it doesn't come from a negative place, you know? So it does feel like a personal attack, honestly. And so it gives me pause in that way, but then no, in the sense that, you know, we shouldn't feel fearful. We shouldn't feel like, and they shouldn't feel like othered just because of how they choose to express themselves. So it's a yes and no situation, but I, I've, I would come back and perform. I would. I wouldn't let. I wouldn't let the legislature, you know, um, try and deter me from that at all. No. Yeah. And a part of your story is that you you started doing drag when you were a teenager, and you went to to prom and drag. Um, yeah. And a lot of this bill is wrapped up in the idea that it's protecting kids. Yeah. And so, could you take me back to your frame of mind, like if you were a kid? A teenager, sixteen, seventeen, growing up in this environment, how 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 does that feel? Or like, I think I was have the same mindset I had back then. I I, for me, drag was a, a sense of freedom. It gave me a, a voice. It gave me a way to feel comfortable in my own skin and not feel so small. So I think I would have the same mentality I did then because I I did it in spite of my fear. I did it because I wanted to feel comfortable. I wanted to feel fabulous and fierce. And I think that's what people gravitate to drag to do. I think I, if anything, it would make me want to go and drag even more. It's a problem. <laughs> Honestly. Because so um, back then, you know, God bless all of my mom, but she was more scared than I was. And I just didn't, under I didn't understand where the fear came from. So I, I think I would still have the same mindset if it were happening to me now, if I was 16 now there. And do you feel like, 
I don't know. It feels like these bills are, are popping up a lot, and a lot of it's targeting yeah. drag queens and drag performers. Like, yeah. do you have any sense of why that is, or do you? does it feel like it's being more hostile than it has been? It, it, it's a fear thing. It always comes from fear, you know? Um, people are being more queer and visible now more than ever, obviously, and it scares people. And so the easiest you know, the easiest people to attack are the people that are most visible. You know, drag queens are pillars of our community and we're usually the most vocal and the most seen. So, of course, they are trying to attack us. And, of course, by attacking us, you know, it eventually devolves into other members of our community. And so I just think it's a way of trying to control the narrative. And, you know, like we said earlier, it always comes back to the kids, you know, using them as a way to be divisive and, and hateful, you know, I, it, it's just fear. And I think the culture and people have moved forward so much and have been so open and honest about who they are that it, it scares people. And they don't know what to do other than try to diminish it and, and erase it. But people aren't going anywhere. People are not going to stop doing drag. People are not going to stop expressing themselves. I mean, I think it's going to make people be more loud and vocal about it. And also a lot of this is kind of wrapped up in, in the idea that drag is somehow sexual or a sexual art form. You know, what is misunderstood about that? What would you say to people? I would say that's not the root of it. It comes from, it's an art form. And people choose to express themselves in different ways when it comes to drag, not every drag queen's alike. And I would tell them to, you know, go to a drag show. See, it's about making people laugh, entertaining people, giving people joy. You know, it's just, it's, like I said earlier, it, it's not a devious thing. It's not a malicious thing. It's not anything that comes from any type of negativity or fear. Have you had conversations with um, with people who are still here and kind of their reaction to this? People who are working um, in, in drag or in club scenes here in Arkansas? People are, I mean, they're understandably upset. They're visually upset. They yeah. feel attacked. They feel like, I mean, for a lot of people, this is a huge source of income for them. You know, like it's, it may not be their main job, but it's a source of income. And so like, mm-hmm. and they're scared of that. They're scared of, you know, if they do this, what's next? They're just confused as to why this, when there's so many other things that could be legislated and talked about and so many other problems going on, you know, like why this issue? And I'm wondering, you know, like what, what do we lose when we uh, cut off this art form to certain groups of people, like, you know, people under 18? What are we losing when we shut this off? I think it's hope, you know, from, at least from what I was when I was a kid and looking at drag queens and seeing it, it gave me a sense of hope and it gave me like, wow, I could see myself a reflection, a mirror of people that thought like me, looked like me and had the same language as far as creativity. You know, it's we're losing self-expression it's, and we're losing people's access to see themselves, honestly. And it's heartbreaking because um, I drag saved my life and I can't imagine what they could do for someone. And I was, I lived in Conway. I lived in a, not necessarily a smaller rural place. So I can't imagine with someone who lives in a smaller place and they have, and they have access to it and it being taken away from them, what that does, it would make me feel like something's wrong, you know, or, um, or how I feel or how I communicate or how I see the world. There's something wrong with that. And I would just hate that for, for someone because, it was just such a light for me. It's and it I say it all the time, saved my life. So it's just devastating. Like I'm holding my tears right now. Like it's it's, yeah. it's truly devastating. 
Can you talk about how that, how that, how it's changed your life? Like when you were at your high school prom in drag, like, did you see yourself being here now answering questions about the legislature? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. You know, for me, it was, um, like I said, it was just a way for me to just feel seen, you know, and like looking back on that time, if I could tell myself what I know now back then, I don't think I would have believed it. And so, you know, like I just, I would hope and wish that for someone else, you know, and I would want that for someone else. I'd want that for a child, then for them to feel safe and protected. And, and when I was, I had no idea what I was doing as far as the reaction I would get or how people would treat me, but I didn't care. And a kid should have that. A kid should be able to feel that and, and not be in fear of it or what, what's going to happen to yeah. them or what people are going to say. Um, do you ever feel, I don't know, embarrassed to be from Arkansas when you, when you see those news flashes pop up on your phone or something and it, it says an Arkansas headline? <laughs> embarrassed is a strong word. Um, I get embarrassed for the actions sometimes um, and, and the mentality sometimes. I'm never embarrassed to say I'm from Arkansas because it's who I am. It's, it's where I grew up and I would never change that. But sometimes the vitriol, the hate that comes from the state is really just mind-blowing to me. And when there's so many different issues, like I said earlier, that could be solved and be worked on, that if we're worried about children, then let's focus on what the real issues of kids are today. And I'm going to tell you that it's not a drag queen or a drag show. Those types of things are, it's, it's more infuriating than anything. Yeah. So what would you say to, to people here who, who are unsure where to go next, like what the next move is for them? I would say keep fighting, keep you know, calling senators, keep informing people of what's going on, fighting back on it and not letting it deter you and, and who you are. Don't, and don't basically don't let them take away your joy and fight to the nail. And because it's not, it's just the beginning. Keep your head up and you know, you're not alone. You're, there's other people that people are seeing what's going on. People in other states, people around the world see what's going on. So you know, it may feel lonely. It may feel like a lonely time, but you're not alone. Uh, why, why do you feel drag is important for people here in Arkansas? Oh my gosh. I, I think it's important because it, oh God, I, there's so many reasons why I don't want to narrow it down because it's just, it's a way for people to see themselves for one. And I think it's important be, because people need to see it there, quite honestly. Um, um, queer culture isn't exactly the, it's not the, it's not the biggest there. And it, this is one way that it could be seen and visible for people. And it's just, it's just so important because there's people, people don't even know, um, how it affects, how it affects others and how it, um, really can change someone's life. They changed mine. I'm an, I'm a prime example of it. So, um, an exposure to a different type of mindset, you know, like everything is not the same. So they need, they need drag queens to see that and to, to learn and to grow and to just further their life experience. You know, that was drag queen and Arkansas native Simone speaking with Ozarks at largest Daniel Carruth. Their conversation took place before references to drag performances were removed from legislation at the state capitol in Little Rock. A large crowd of protesters from youth to elders turned out, many dressed in drag, in Basin Park in downtown Eureka Springs Saturday to protest that Arkansas legislation. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich 
filed this audio postcard. Hi, I'm John Rankin, and I'm from Eureka Springs, and I'm one of the organizers of this event today in Basin Park. Um, Organized because the trans and, well, actually the whole LGBT community is being targeted um, unjustly by our legislation. And they're putting out these laws, and more are coming, as we know. But SB 43 was basically... Um, a law that was going to prevent um, drag queens from performing anywhere. Um, It was also maybe going to target um, transgender people. And we had about 70 people uh, show up. It was a fun thing. We wanted to make it a fun event. And it was. We had some professional drag queens uh, performing. We had some non-professional drag queens, myself included, uh, performing today. It was just a lot of fun. And we just wanted to make a little bit of noise. Hi, I'm Samuel. Um, I'm from Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I'm 15 years old and I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm here to stand up for LGBTQ plus rights um, against this bill. These politicians and people working in government, um, I think they do this just because they know they can get away with it. And they slip through these little bills, they change words around, they know that they can target trans people and other people. And, you know, when it, in the end of the day, I don't have, like, a direct idea why they do it. It makes no sense to me. It's just harmful and hurtful to me. Um, and a lot of the times they say it's to protect people and keep people away from, you know, people like myself. Even though I'm not a danger to, you know, society. I'm just a kid. I'm just living my life. But they know that they can get away with it. They target trans kids in school, trans adults just trying to live their lives, you know, not doing anything. And, you know, personally, myself, I have to travel out of state for medical care because of what Arkansas does against trans people. You know, just a bit of what it's like. Sounds of downtown Eureka Springs on Saturday. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Reams have been written about Memphis, Tennessee's place in the creation of rhythm and blues, rockabilly, rock and roll, and blues music. But on the other side of the Mississippi River, often forgotten is the pivotal role Crittenden County's West Memphis, Arkansas had during this period as a playground of Memphians, West Memphians, Mississippians, and beyond with its music, gambling, and nightclubs. The first river bridge between the two Memphises opened in 1892. A second bridge opened in 1916. The city of West Memphis incorporated in 1923. The population of West Memphis nearly quadrupled during the decade of the 1930s. Greyhound racing became legal in the county in 1935 and remains so today, but plenty of things went on in West Memphis that were not legal. With Memphis, Tennessee's 9 p.m. noise ordinance and West Memphis authorities paid off to look the other way at the gambling, drugs, and prostitution, nightlife on the Arkansas side swelled to a fever pitch. 
9th and 10th and especially 8th Street became the center of West Memphis's scene, but the rowdiness was not confined to that area. In the 1940s and 1950s, venues in town such as the Joy Theater hosted live burlesque shows that had been banned in Memphis. Later, artist and musician Jimmy Crosswaite, who lived in East Arkansas, remembered screenings of nudist colony footage and stag films and said West Memphis was where Memphians could get extra wild. Musician and West Memphis native Wayne Jackson recalls regular cockfights being held under the River Bridge. Many of the West Memphis revelers were from Shelby County, Tennessee's naval base in Millington. Launched in 1942, the Plantation Inn nightclub was a favorite spot for West Memphis debauchery. The club hosted such legendary house bands as Gene Bowlegs Miller, Ben Branch and the Largos, Willie Mitchell and the Four Kings, and the Phineas Newburn Sr. family band, with sons Phineas Jr. on piano and Calvin on guitar. Isaac Hayes sang with the Ben Branch band for $5 a night. Nicknamed the P.I., Morris Berger and his son Louis Jack owned the club, which had once been an actual plantation house. A neon sign reading, Having Fun with Morris, was hung near the stage and was also the name of the radio show, hosted by Berger and broadcast from the P.I. Other West Memphis night spots included the Square Deal Cafe, the Little Brown Jug, the Willowdale Inn, the Busy Bee, the Cotton Club, the Blue Goose, and Pippi Jones's Pool Hall. West Memphis Radio was part of the mix as well, broadcasting rockabilly and blues, much of it performed live on the air by the likes of Sonny Boy Williamson, Howlin' Wolf, Johnny Cash, and Elvis Presley. Alan Wolf, Robert Lockwood, Junior Parker, Sonny Boy Williamson II, B.B. King, and countless less-known bluesmen all live in West Memphis at various points in their careers. Alan Wolf, in particular, acknowledged the musical amalgam that occurred in the area. Wolf and others took the Delta Blues and added amplifiers and drums. While it became known as Chicago-style blues, Wolf and other of its practitioners called it the West Memphis Sound. February 1960 murder of a Memphis girl by a Memphis boy on the Arkansas side brought much of the wide-open West Memphis scene to a quick halt. Less than a week after the incident, Danny's Club and the Cotton Club both closed. The Plantation Inn stayed open for a few more years until 1964, but the family diversified. They opened Poncho's Mexican Restaurant with a club in the back called the El Toro. West Memphis's legendary Plantation Inn became Poncho's parking lot. Here in its entirety is Sonny Boy Williamson too a.k.a. Rice Miller, with West Memphis Blues from 1951 on Trumpet Records out of Jackson, Mississippi. Sunday morning 
Sonny Boy Williamson 2, a.k.a. Rice Miller, with West Memphis Blues from 1951. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Executive producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansas, since 1998. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Huntsville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jana Carruth, Randy Dixon, Stephen Cook, and Jacqueline Froelich. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for being with us on this Monday. Guess what we're going to do tomorrow? We're going to have another show. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Noon and 7.